to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. It is November now. We just got through Halloween and Thanksgiving is around the corner. And if the seasonal section at our local stores are any indicator, Christmas is tomorrow. Uh, And my house is no different with the early Christmas decorating. The tree is up. It went up on November 11th, and strangely enough, this was with some amount of resistance and delay, mostly coming from me. At least two of my three kids were all the way on board with this early transition into the Christmas season, and my wife was not far behind. (laughs) I try try to put a measure of sanity in our celebrations and push for Christmas to come after Thanksgiving and not before but alas, I am outnumbered and outgunned. And frankly, I don't want to fight too hard to dampen the holiday spirit, lest I be labeled a Grinch, which has happened. (laughs) Um, And when we're kids, holidays, and especially Christmas, carry huge levels of excitement and anticipation. Kids report not being able to sleep on Christmas Eve because of the excitement, and I remember this for sure when I was a kid, although now as a parent, they they fall asleep. (laughs) Um, But... Do you remember when that started to shift and when the excitement wasn't quite as strong for Christmas anymore? Do you remember the first time that you were disappointed in a holiday? Like a Christmas where you didn't get what you really wanted, or a Thanksgiving where you were excited to eat three helpings of everything only to realize after one and a half that you were hopelessly stuffed, and that you're on tap for the dishes afterwards, and Thanksgiving dishes are rough, (laughs) Um, and that You've got to do that despite feeling sluggish and sleepy after eating too much turkey. So what do you think is really going on when we're disappointed with a Christmas or a holiday meal doesn't deliver everything it hoped, you hoped for? Um, I think usually it is that we are pinning too much of our hopes and expectations on a gift or a meal, and we end up kind of ruining it for ourselves. Christmas becomes less about a celebration and more about getting one specific thing we are hoping for. Wrong gift, no joy. With Thanksgiving or Halloween, we experience too much of a good thing. There is only a certain amount of enjoyment to be had from a single meal or from tons of candy before eating more just sounds awful. We go from being young children delighted by any gift or even the box the gift came in to being complicated adolescents and adults who have been through enough Christmases, Halloweens, and Thanksgivings that we've seen the limits to that pleasure and the ways our expectations and behavior can lessen the joy and the magic. This actually mirrors the way we pursue happiness and fulfillment in our lives. It's just like a kid on Halloween eating candy until he's sick. We assume that more is always better. You can take any example of a pleasure-giving activity. Sexuality, good food, good coffee, beer, board games, video games, parties with friends. Our logic goes that if we get pleasure from this activity, we should just keep doing it more. And if not more, then higher quality. We can do more sex, better sex, or different sex, or we can watch more porn, different porn, or more extreme porn. Not a good path. (laughs) Or we can eat more food or better food. Um, If parties are fun, we should party every week, or every weekend night, or every night. We should have the best coffee, the best beer, play the best games, or have more time to play those games. If we can increase these activities, our pleasure will keep increasing, and we will be happy, or so our thinking goes. This doesn't really work, though. Um, Just like with a big Thanksgiving meal, the pleasure from these things does not continue to satisfy us. 
A quick example from my high school economics class. And if anyone wants to sound like they took economics and they haven't, this is called diminishing marginal utility. Little nerdiness. <laughs> um, I remember being in class and my teacher had a dozen donuts, which confused us because there were something like 25 of us in the class. She asked for a volunteer who enjoyed donuts and a not small boy volunteered with glee. <laughs> she then um, had him eat the donuts one at a time and rate his enjoyment from each donut on a scale from one to 10. Donuts, so the way it played out, the first donuts, the score was very high. It was like seven or higher. So that was like donuts one, two, and probably three. Then the scores started to diminish to the point where his fifth or sixth donuts, um, the scores were more like two or three, and he eventually said, no more, please. I don't know if you could still you know, have a kid just sit there and eat like six or seven donuts in a class. But that, this is what happened. <laughs> um, now, obviously, this is how that would play out. We get full, and our enjoyment from something like donuts diminishes to the point where it goes away completely. Um, and this, this is how pleasure works with a lot of things. As we continue to go back to these sources for pleasure, uh, they stop working. It's like they get tapped out, or our, or our enjoyment from them is limited and temporary. It's like being a kid and getting what you really wanted for Christmas, only to realize a week later that despite it being great, it doesn't offer the nonstop enjoyment that you dreamed of. And I think we all know this is true when we just stop and think about things. Any of food, sex, work, our appearance, vacation, leisure, technology can certainly give us pleasure, but not in excess. And there are words for people who obsess about these things, um, the, one of these sources of pleasure, and all of them are negative. For food, there's a glutton. For alcohol, there's a drunkard. There's a sex addict, a lazy bum, a workaholic. Um, all of these things are negative. Um, even if you go to uh, an extreme, even drug and alcohol addiction, and really the biggest difference there is that all of these things are addictions. Um, those are just the ones that we often call out as addictions. Um, trying to chase these sources of pleasure to the point where it is no longer healthy and becoming, becomes an all-encompassing destructive force in our life is what addiction is. Understanding and combating this common issue is what we're talking about today. Uh, we're talking about simplifying our pursuit of pleasure, not letting it take over and become a destructive force in our lives like an addiction. And for an overall framework to, to get started um, for what we'll discuss, we'll call back to a theme featured in our last series on the book Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. If you remember this, and if you, if you didn't catch some of those, I encourage you to go back and, and listen to them or, or just read the book. Um, this was called The Stratagem of the Three Enemies of the Soul, and it goes like this. Deceptive ideas, the devil, that play to our disordered desires, the flesh, that are normalized in, our, in a sinful society, the world. So this is the strategy with which these enemies of the soul attack us, essentially. And what we're talking about today is these disordered desires, or the flesh, in this example. Um, so this is not just enjoying a meal for the pleasure it brings, but never wanting it to end. Not just enjoying sex with your spouse, but wondering if it is better with someone else or a lot of different someone else's. These are the disordered desires of the flesh. And when we talk about simplifying pleasure, it means keeping the desires in their correct place. Enjoying the pleasure, but not making the pursuit of these individual pleasures a consuming focus in our lives. Which sounds potentially easy, but unfortunately, these desires, they live inside us. 
Um, this is what is described in Galatians 5, which will be the central text uh, from the Bible this morning if you want to bookmark it. It reads this way, starting with verse 13. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. And where it says, to connect the dots, where it says sinful nature in this passage, in other translations, uh, the same word is translated as the flesh, uh, which is kind of the translation used in that stratagem um, that we read earlier. Um, these verses kind of lay out the struggle that Christians have with our own desires. Some of them are from the sinful nature, and others are from the Holy Spirit. Um, and having these good and bad desires within us um, actually makes it pretty clear how the same person can do what looks like great ministry or great things for God, but also have significant moral failings, like affairs, drug addictions, and the like. They are listening to and pursuing both desires, and it eventually blows up um, in their face, as the two frequent headlines tell us. Now, figuring out the difference between these two things is the business that we're going about today. What desires within us are of the flesh uh, or of the sinful nature? And how do we identify these and make sure that we do not indulge them or do not follow them? How do we stay on the good side of the disordered desires? Luckily, Paul must have known uh, this was the natural follow-up question, and he provides a list to help. Uh, this is continuing on in Galatians 5. He says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. So this is quite a list. Um, I'm going to address these in groups and attempt to draw straight lines to things that are most relevant to our lives today. Uh, as is pretty much always the case, this was written you know, 2,000 years ago, so I'm gonna to try to do a little translation. The first group, which I will call the sexy group, get ready to get uncomfortable, <laughs> uh, is sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, and wild parties, which in another translation is translated as orgies. Um, so, first thing with this one, sexual immorality. Uh, if you read through the Bible, you will see this phrase quite a bit, uh, and I think its weirdness and vagueness allows people to blow by it. What this means is essentially any sexual activity outside of the marriage relationship. That is the very condensed version of what, what the writers of the Bible meant when they said this. Um, it would encompass all of premarital sex, casual hookups, cheating on your spouse, open marriages, swinging, polyamory, even homosexual sex, despite being called out separately in the Bible and other places, would be swept up in this broad definition of sexual immorality. Again, it is anything that is outside the clearly defined boundary, sexual boundary in the Bible of biblical marriage. And also note that this, um, this in this list, that these are the results of following the desires of the sinful nature. Having those desires is not portrayed as sinful. In fact, it is portrayed as a given, that you will have desires put there by your sinful nature. Um, what Paul is saying is that following them and indulging them 
um, is where the, where the problem lies. The other one that I'll hit on is what it says is lustful pleasures. Um, for us today, I think the clearest example of this is pornography. Um, and although I suppose things like going to strip clubs, going to places to specifically look lustfully at people, like a pool or beach, uh, those would all qualify. As would the subsequent masturbation after these activities, which is probably where the pleasures part comes in. Um, all of these are acts of the sinful nature, and they involve objectifying people, boiling them down to just their body and sexuality to fulfill our desires. Now, some truth about porn, and I know how widespread porn is, um, how, ubiquitous it, how ubiquitous it is, and I am not blameless in this area, just to be clear, I don't want to come across that way. And I envy anyone who is, because there is a very addictive side to pornography. Now first, um, I think this is something that people think, porn is not a victimless sin. Um, it is private, but it only takes some time looking at the porn industry and the things around it. Um, the industry that is propped up by our clicks and our time spent looking at porn um, to see the, the dark side. Um, so our world's appetite for porn leads to people having videos posted online against their will without their consent, so anyone can see. There are numerous stories online of what effect this has had on people. People have committed suicide as a result, and while that is not everyone, there is a very real and terrible trauma to that sort of thing happening. And part of why that happens is because there is demand for those things online. Um, there, so like the, if you take it to what is arguably the best version, um, there are young men and to a lesser, or young women and to a lesser extent men <laughs> who make a rational choice to make porn because there is so much demand for it and that they can make money doing it. And the, the part that is the saddest about that, since that is the best example, is that that is a, them reacting to the marketplace, to the way that the world is, to the way that our demands, that the demands of people to see more and more pornographic content, that that ends up being a decision that is rational for them. To me, that's the saddest, but that's the best <laughs> example. The, on the other side is there are people that are coerced into the industry, that are sex trafficked, um, that there are kids that are being abused with child pornography, and pornography is a feeder into all kinds of much worse things like sex trafficking that I mentioned. Um, it is absolutely not victimless. Um, so on the other side of it, the other big problem with pornography is what it does to the person consuming it. Um, an article on Relevant Magazine called How Porn is Rewiring the Brains of a Generation has a lot of good information on what porn is doing to young people who have grown up with it. Um, there's a lot in there that's worth reading. I think we'll have a link in the Bible app uh, that you can, you can read that. Uh, the, but the part I wanted to share um, is on what is called porn-induced erectile dysfunction. Here's a quote from the article talking about men who grew up addicted to porn. It says, they all express the shock of discovering that porn usage has hampered their ability to have sex with a physical partner. The article reported that before internet porn, only 5% of men under 40 had erectile dysfunction. Today, 33% of men under 40 report some degree of ED. And this is a pattern um, that is common in pursuing a source of pleasure like this in obedience to the sinful nature. Not only does it fail to give you the fullness of pleasure that it's imitating, that's what sex is meant to be, but it begins to ruin the real sex for you that you could have had later in life. Um, the further a person goes into the weird depths of pornography, the more specific their sexuality becomes. And in, 
then instead of enjoying sex with a partner and letting your sexuality grow and form together, you instead want a partner who looks a specific way based on what you've seen or is of a specific race or you get fixated on a specific body part or want to bring in acts that are extreme and aren't really sex. Um, people end up wanting to be choked or hit, or I don't even know what else, but plenty of weird stuff. Um, and just to be clear, um, things like this and desires for that to be involved with your sexuality are not innate. You are not born as a person who is into aggressive and violent sex. It is through watching porn and dwelling on it and following the, sinful, the desires of the sinful nature that people become that way. Um, yeah, it's through letting that experience and that content form your sexuality that lands people there. And again, this is not uncommon, and God offers healing and forgiveness. So I don't want anyone to feel like if you've gone too far down this that you're beyond redemption. That is absolutely not true. Um, and you're not alone, because like I said, porn is very, um, is very prevalent. Um, God offers healing, he offers forgiveness, but this does have a real effect on your brain and your ability to have a healthy sexual relationship in the future. All right, enough on the sexy group. Um, remember how we were going through the lists of the acts of sinful nature in Galatians 5? Um, the next one I'm going to call the meme group. Um, it includes hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, and envy. Uh, and this group, I'm going to talk about less of them individually. This group consists of not getting along with other people. Uh, these largely come back to wanting to put ourselves above and over other people. This is why we quarrel, quarrel why we want, to, we want to get our own way. Uh, dissension and division are similar, and selfish ambition is often the fuel for these sorts of disagreements. Um, now, to be clear, um, there are absolutely correct reasons to divide or dissent, um, however, the spirit and the, the desires of the spirit long for unity and peace. The spirit wants reconciliation and mourns at division, always hoping that the other side can be redeemed and that unity can be restored. So if you contrast that list um, with Jesus teaching us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you, you can see very big differences there. Now with this one, uh, to try to identify if our actions fall into this category, we need to examine the times that we are frustrated with someone or angry and try to understand the reason. Um, we often think that we are righteous so that our anger must be righteous. Um, but there are times when someone is merely in our way and we are in a hurry or their success makes us realize um, an area we are insecure about. So we are envious or jealous or angry with them. The problem with this group of actions is that they are devoid of love for other people. There is no empathy just to focus on ourselves and how other people are barriers to what we want and how we want the world to be. For a kind of more concrete example that I think we see, usually we see this in other people, but try to figure out if you're this way too. Not being able to celebrate with someone when things go well for them or they have a great life event um, or being happy when things go badly for other people. Those are big red flags in this area. If you can't celebrate with someone or if you celebrate their misery, <laughs> those are, um, pieces of evidence that you've got some, some issues in this area. Um, these are things that are mean and selfish and are very opposed to the love of God. All right, one last list. Uh, I'm going to leave out idolatry and most of sorcery. Um, maybe another time on those. Uh, this one I'm going to call the excess group, which includes drunkenness, 
Uh, I'm going to pull in some the word sorcery here, but and other sins of the like, which is what it says. So uh, this is really only one word. I'm putting gluttony in this one. Elsewhere in the Bible, you see the term. Um, he is a glutton and a drunkard put together. So I'm kind of tying those together. That was like a word used for a wayward um, son that could be stoned in the Old Testament for like a lazy layabout who just pursued drunkenness and gluttony. Um, and let's see on the on the sorcery side. So there. Are, the word that's translated into sorcery here um, has a few definitions, one of them to include magical potions, uh, which I'm going to tie into drugs. So um, th there certainly were other things meant by sorcery, like what we would think of as actual sorcery, but that is, that is one of them. Um, so to translate, I'm gonna make this list drunkenness, gluttony, and drugs. Uh, and this is probably the diciest of the list because in this one, the degree is what we need to simplify. Um, and to clarify, with gluttony, food is fine. <laughs> food is good. Obviously, we need food. So I'm, by no means am I saying, you know, only eat bread or something like that. Um, and I also think that, I mean, alcohol, I would say, is less good than food. You don't need alcohol. Um, but I also think it is fine in its place and in small doses. For example, um, just quickly, we see Jesus drinking wine in the Bible. We see him turning water into wine as, as, his, as his first miracle in the Gospels. Um, I think completely abstaining from alcohol is very defendable as a life choice for a Christian. This is what John the Baptist did. Uh, the sect of the Nazarenes were this way. I think Samson was like that, although he's not a good example of much. Um, <laughs> um, but it's clear that abstaining from alcohol is not a universal command in the Bible. Um, on the drug side, you probably shouldn't do drugs. Um, if something is legal, Maybe it falls into the same area as alcohol. I haven't thought that through as much because most of my life, most drugs were illegal. <laughs> um, but I mean, legal drug, I mean, caffeine's a drug. Like that, all of those things, I would again say, you know, abstaining from them completely is perfectly fine. Keeping them in control um, is fine too. Um, so I will share a few, a few passages from the Bible that seem to indicate that these um, alcohol and drugs should be handled with quite a bit of caution and restraint. Uh, this first one is from 1 Thessalonians. It says, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. So this kind of says that um, people of the night are drunken and we are children of the light who are sober by contrast. More on this in a minute. So next one, this is from 1 Peter. He says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Again, this seems to be saying that if we are not of sober mind and we are not prepared, uh, that it opens us up to the devil who is prowling around looking for someone to devour. The second one is particularly sobering. You know, sobering. <laughs> um, full confession, I dislike the word sober. Um, when I was reading this and preparing for it, I was like, oh, I'm going to talk about sobriety. Great. Um, I don't know why. I dislike it. I don't dislike it when it is in contrast to being a drunk. <laughs> um, in that standpoint, I like it. It's more the definition that means overly serious and boring that I think I don't like. Um, so anyway, 
However, I think that both of these verses get at a very clear line for alcohol and this list of excesses. We need to not be people who are defined by drunkenness or who are often drunk like people of the night or who are not usually of sober mind. Um, the practical application I have for this is similar to what I have for food uh, and gluttony and feasting. So alcohol and lavish meals are both for celebrations and not for everyday life. Pouring a lot of time and money into Thanksgiving dinner is generally not seen as gluttony, it is a celebration. Um, it's a celebration of family and a time of giving thanks for the blessings in our life. Um, and this is very similar to the festivals of the Old Testament. If you read through when it lists all of the festivals, um, those are actually all feasts. Like it talks about all these sacrifices. After they did the sacrifices, they feasted on the lambs and the meat. That's, that's really what a lot of that was. There was certainly the religious aspect to it, but there was also the community celebrating and feasting together. Um, similarly with alcohol, if you're going to partake, uh, again, it's fine and even good not to, but if you are, first, keep it within the law, so not underage um, and not, beyond, not driving beyond the limits. Um, also, it should probably not be your normal routine. We are to be of sober mind. Having a couple drinks with friends after work week is over is fine. Drinking at a wedding seems to fit the bill. Drinking every night or every weekend probably wouldn't. Uh, and if you need alcohol every night to calm your nerves or to de-stress, that is not a good sign. Uh, and it's trending toward dependency and addiction, even if it's in small quantities. So... On the list overall, uh, this is primarily a problem of over-pursuing the pleasure. Um, don't eat until you can't walk or feast every night of every weekend. That's gluttony. Don't drink to the point of being drunk and don't become dependent on alcohol or any other drug to make it through your day. Be of sober mind and walk with the spirit. Make sure you are in control of your consumption of food and alcohol and that the pleasure you gain from these activities stays in its rightful place. Within your control, and as a part of God's kingdom, which means in alignment with God's will. All right, that was the last um, group for the acts of the sinful nature. We had the sexy group, the mean group, and the excess group. As a reminder, um, these are the results of following the desires of the sinful nature. Having the desires is a given. Following them is the problem. Just want to make that clear. So, all right, let's turn now to the positive side. How should our lives look instead? Right after the passage, passage we read earlier, Paul gives a contrasting list. Remember, the Holy Spirit and the sinful nature are at odds within us, um, creating um, competing desires within us. Here is the next passage in Galatians 5. It says, But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. So this is a pretty good and well-known list, um, the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, these are clearly meant to be, I think I lose track of this because you hear about the fruits of the Spirit way more than you hear about the previous list. Um, these are clearly meant to be two contrasting lists um, that show the evidence of following the desires of the sinful nature versus the evidence uh, of following the desires of the Holy Spirit. Um, the clear reflection activity with these two lists is to take a look at the fruits of your life, which is the outcomes and the behaviors, 
um, and ask yourself, uh, is your life more characterized by lustful pleasures, envy, discord, or love, patience, joy, and self-control? Now, if you're like me, when you do this, um, there are pieces on both lists that kind of stick out. Uh, Some on the bad list that are too present uh, and that you need to spend less time indulging, and some on the good list that aren't as present as they should be. Um, And not to be negative, because when I self-reflect, I kind of tend to be negative. Um, There's also ones on the bad list that I'm not even close to, (laughs) and ones on the good list that that I'm doing quite well on. And and I think it's important to recognize those things and recognize um, the good things in our lives um, as well. Um, And I I would say that this is okay. Um, Noticing things not being perfectly in alignment um, is how we find the areas to grow, and we can isolate the sinful desires that we're following more than we should. Um, Now, on on the fruits of the Spirit, one of them that sticks out for our topic more than the others is the last one, which is self-control. A lot of what we're talking about is being able to say no to our desire to always want more of a given pleasure or of things that give us pleasure. Um, Remember that it's more or better sex, more or better food, more pleasure for me. Self-control is specifically being able to set a limit on things that can get destructive like keeping sex within the limit of marriage, for instance, and then being able to hold to it. Now, it's important to note that this is a characteristic of living by the Spirit, which means that it is not about having the strongest willpower compared to everybody else. Um, The idea is that if we live life with God, being guided by His Spirit, we will have the self-control necessary to abide by those limits. Now, a pastor that I listen to regularly, Tyler Stanton, often says that willpower is a diminishing resource, which matches up with my experience, uh, meaning that it's tied to our energy. Uh, You can resist things better in the morning or when you're well-rested than later in the day when you've been expending willpower and energy um, bit by bit. So while we should expend our willpower to resist temptation for sure and show self-control, that cannot be our only plan or we're going to fail. Um, We need to live in the Spirit and lean on God to help us. All right, so that is the two lists, um, Acts of the Sinful Nature and the Fruits of the Spirit. Um, One is evidence of following the sinful nature uh, and the other of being guided by the Spirit. Um, But what about all of the things that are not on those lists? What about watching TV, playing video games, crochet, cricket, or LARPing? Um, Or really most any hobby or leisure activity? Um, Real quick, all of these things are fine uh, in general. Um, And by no means am I saying, cut out your hobbies, that's ridiculous. (laughs) Um, But what I do want to point out is that there is an aspect of opportunity cost with things that we decide to spend our time on. Um, So what opportunity cost is, this means that when we choose to spend our time doing something, even something good or something okay, it means that we are choosing not to spend our time on something else. For instance, if I join a baseball league that plays on Sunday mornings, that means I am choosing not to come to church. Or if I am choosing to spend $1,000 on a vacation, I can't use that same money for a car or to save for college or anything else I might want to use it for. That's what opportunity cost means. And something I recently realized is I feel like I have no additional time in my life. Um, Whenever something pops up that requires my time, I feel like I can't possibly fit it in because so like I'm behind on tracking our finances or I'm behind on something at work or I really should be prepping a message for next week. Um, and the, these things that pop up include things like spending time playing with my kids, doing household chores, planning time to be with friends, things that I actually highly value and should be doing, but when they pop up as a need, 
I feel like I can't fit them in. Um, however, I do spend a significant amount of time each day playing phone games and reading random articles. <laughs> um, if I cut those things out, and I probably don't mean entirely out, but if I cut them mostly out, I suddenly have a little more time. It's not that hard to, to free up 20 minutes in your day. Um, but it, it requires making a decision not to do something that you're doing now. Um, Bob Goff, who is a author of the book Love Does, suggested quitting one thing every Thursday. <laughs> um, and he extends it to more than just time commitments, because I think if I quit it, even as busy as I feel, I feel like if I quit one thing every Thursday in like two months, I'd be, I'd be done. <laughs> um, but he extends it to more than just um, things like, you know, actual things in your schedule. But I, I just think it's a really interesting practice to cut out things that are not, and he specifically cuts out things that are not his number one priority. He's not gonna be like, oh, I'm done, I'm done playing with my kids, or I'm not gonna work if you need to work. It's not that stuff. It's trying to cut out the things that are at the margin so you can free up time and have space to love people and to say yes um, when, when opportunities arise. All right, so most of, most of what we talked about to this point has been limiting or controlling our desires when they are from the sinful nature. Uh, now we're gonna move to a more positive side. This is one of my favorite quotes, it's from C.S. Lewis, and it's specifically about pursuing pleasure, so I thought it was good for this. Um, here's what it says. It says, we are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ, and nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. This is written like a really long time ago, but I feel like it's still very, very uh, applicable. Um, and in a message that can otherwise seem like I'm saying a lot of deny yourself, which is kind of how he started that, I want to remind us that God's teaching in this area is not to deny us pleasure, but to point us to infinite joy. Uh, we don't need to try to squeeze more and more pleasure out of drink, sex, food, ambition, or whatever else we're chasing, because they are not what we long for, and they will not satisfy us. Last week, Tyler shared a quote from Dallas Willard um, that points to the reason for this. It says, Desire is infinite partly because we were made by God, made for God, made to need God, and made to run on God. We can be satisfied only by the one who is infinite, eternal, and able to supply all our needs. So we kind of started talking about how these things we pursue, like eating the donuts, eventually dry up and stop giving us um, the pleasure we're looking for. That's because we are not ultimately made to be satisfied by sex, by food, drink, ambition, accomplishment, or approval. We are meant to be satisfied by God and fulfilled by him. We are meant to live by the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Holy Trinity. If it sounds odd for God um, or for the Spirit to fulfill you or give you joy, um, I challenge you to try it. Um, I think part of why that can sound odd is that 
Um, a lot of us, even, even people who are committed and devoted to God, don't spend that much time actually talking to God and actually living in relationship with him. We do, a, like, I mean, it, I'm talking to myself a lot. Um, we do a lot of learning about God and sometimes thinking about God, but actually spending time with him um, through prayer is something that I, I've recently started doing much more. Um, so if you would like to try this, um, I'll talk through what I'm doing um, and where the practice we're gonna do is actually one step of it. So one of the things that I've just started doing um, is to commit to praying three times a day. Uh, and the, the three is not a random number. Actually, three, I mean, three comes up in the Bible a lot. But um, this, is, this mirrors the schedule that was kept in Jesus' day. So you'll, if you read through the Bible and pay attention to like, what it says, it'll be like, when they were walking to, for the prayer, like to the prayer place or to the temple for prayer, um, they used to go and gather for prayer three times a day. Um, so that's kind of where this comes from. So three separate times during the day where they gather to pray. And here's the structure that I've adapted, which helps me a lot. And feel free to alter it to fit your situation. But for me, I find just having a structure that I can try <laughs> is really helpful as opposed to spending time to try to figure it out myself. Um, so first in the morning, I do five to 10 minutes. I either do this when I wake up uh, or before starting work um, or around 10 if I don't hit those. I have a timer, so I try to catch it. Um, for this one, I pray through the Lord's Prayer. Um, which we are going to do for our active reflection activity. Um, so real quick, if, if you want to look this up, it's Matthew 6, 9 through 13. There's also a version in Luke. Um, but the Matthew one, I feel, is a little easier to pray through because um, it's, it's got a little more meat in there that helps you um, prompt. So the idea is to pray this how it relates to your life. It's not just say it liturgically. Um, it is going through each of the sections and pray through that area and how it relates to your life. Um, so like when it says... Um, give me this day my daily bread. For most of us, we're not food insecure. Feel free to pray for daily bread, but really you're asking for what you need to get through your day. Um, for me, it's a lot of things like help me to stay, stay focused at work, help me to treat people well, help me to, um, you know, to, to love the people around me. It's that sort of thing that, that I ask for, and I usually extend and, and pray for my family as well. Um, so that's the first one. So that's the morning, five to 10 minutes. Um, next, in the middle of your day, I do this around two or three. I only do five minutes on this one, um, which is praying for the lost people in your life. So people who don't know God, um, praying that they would come to know him. Um, I usually also pray for our church at this time, uh, that God would bless our ministry and to reach people for God. So this is kind of a, I, I try to keep this as an externally focused prayer where I'm praying for other people that they would come to know God. Um, and then the third one, uh, what I usually do is the, um, prayer of Examine, which is a practice that we did, I think it's been four or five weeks ago, Megan Stibberts led us through it. Um, so that is praying back through your day with God, um, recognizing when you were particularly close to him, um, giving thanks for things um, throughout your day, and recognizing what's called desolations, things when you were not as close to him, when you kind of strayed from God, going back through those things and praying through them with God as a result. And with, with all of these probably the biggest point of it is that you are in, inviting the Spirit and inviting God into your life. You're opening the communication channel to talk to him when he's always there, but it is usually us choosing not to talk with him. And kind of the, the idea with this, and with the three times a day, and that, that in any practice, the idea is not necessarily to hit it perfectly. The idea is to orient ourselves to God, to open ourselves up to him. And the real goal is to, like, 
like the passage we read through said, to be guided by the Spirit, to be guided by the desires of the Spirit as opposed to the desires of the sinful nature. And having those three times when you check in during the day, for me, has really helped with that. Um, and to kind of draw what this is, is supposed to be doing. So, um, you know, it says, you know, pointing to infinite joy is what the, the quote said. Um, the idea there is both that you, you get that joy and that satisfaction from God himself and the results of the people around you. So um, first and second great commandment, love the Lord your God and love other people. Those are clearly meant to be um, the sources of our joy in our lives. Um, so I, I just want to encourage people to check that out or do something similar because really spending your time with God, um, have him be what fulfills you instead of you know, all the things we talked through, um, whether it be sexuality or um, food, drink, um, all those things. All right, so um, so this is kind of the, the crux of what putting um, limits um, on our desires and pursuit of pleasure boils down to. Um, you know, do we really trust God that what he says is better, that his way is better, um, that he can fulfill us more than more sex, better food, more possessions, or whatever else we're chasing after? And I believe it is. Um, I believe the reason that we are left unsatisfied by these things is that we are meant to run on God. We can live with him. We can enjoy the pleasures that come to us in our normal lives and thank God for them without letting our sinful nature run wild. I pray that you would join me in the coming weeks and months in pursuing God through prayer and let's see what happens in our lives and in our church if we do that. Let's pray together. Dear God, I thank you. Um, I thank you that you do fulfill us, God. Um, I thank you that, that you've designed a world where um, there are pleasures that we can enjoy, Lord, but that also that they ultimately point us back to you. Um, I pray that you would help us to identify um, the desires in us that are, are from the sinful nature and ones that are from the spirit, Lord, and that we would... Um, that we would feed and water the ones from the Spirit and that we would resist the ones of the sinful nature, Lord. We love you and we pray that you would be with us, God. Pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at damascusroadtucson.com.